Hi, Bree here. I just wanted to pop in with a quick disclaimer that Leah and I have decided to censor a certain actor's name, in part for comedic effect, but also not to provide them with any more attention. Feel free to Google the cast of Dark Shadows and skip this one if you want. There will be no hard feelings from us. We wanted to find a workaround to cover this dumpster fire of a film while also not fanning the flames or promoting bad people. We hope you enjoy this episode if you stick around, and let's get into it. Welcome, I'm Bree. And I'm Leah, and we're your hosts. You've just joined a meeting of the fan club where we reluctantly cover a film that is vaguely a scary, sexy, and sometimes silly vampire. Actually, that's, I didn't proofread that enough. It's vaguely a vampire film of the 21st century. It's not really scary, sexy, or silly. It's just dumb. Yeah, although. There is a sex scene that we'll talk about. But it, it wasn't <laughs> sexy. Anyway. <laughs> no, it's not sexy. So here is the obligatory spoiler alert for the movie we're discussing, which is Tim Burton's 2012 remake, I guess, of Dark Shadows. It's a flop of a movie. Yeah, it really is. And I say this as an avid Tim Burton apologist. <laughs> like, <laughs> I will always have... like. A special place in my heart for Tim Burton things, even though I, as I've gotten older, I can be critical of his work now. And I know that there's a lot of shit that rubs me the wrong way now. But even in 2012, I was kind of like, this is shit. <laughs> it's just not a very good movie. No. Yeah. Mm-mm. It's it's really not. It's a remake slash kind of film adaptation of a daytime supernatural soap opera, also called Dark Shadows from the late 60s, early 70s, which was pretty popular after they introduced the vampire. It's important to note here that like most of the storyline aside from Barnabas is like already established with like 200 episodes of the soap opera. And then yeah, because it was on every single day. It's a daytime soap. So there are so many episodes of this show. And then like season 10 of this, they were like losing ratings and on the verge of being canceled. And so they were like, what are teens like? Vampires. (laughs) It wasn't that far. It was it was season two. But because they were on for every day, you know, it was like episode 250 or something. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I read something that said 10 in it, and I don't think it was a season, but it was just the number, so it's been, like, stuck in my head wrong. But, yeah, yeah, but there yeah. there had been, like, hundreds of episodes of this show before they introduced the vampire, and uh, he was not meant to be a recurring character, really, but people... He became the center of the show. Yeah, he ended up becoming the main character. Now, if you, if you try to watch it anywhere... It starts at episode, like, 200-something with the introduction of Barnabas. Yes, yes. And so the show was pretty popular when it was on in the 70s, and they even had tried to reboot the show as a primetime soap opera in the 90s, in 1991, and that was short-lived. So this film was sort of the second attempt at, like, you know, reviving the franchise. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And as someone who generally enjoys a campy hot mess, I can say I think we should really just leave Dark Shadows buried in the ground where it is. (laughs) I think that there's a a reason that none of the remakes or, like, revamps worked. And that's because I I don't think that the story is strong. (laughs) Yeah. Personally. Um, And that's the biggest downfall of this version is that the screenplay is one of the worst things I've come across in a long time. 
It's really bad. It's a really bad screenplay. And we've got to shout out our homie. It's written by Seth Graham Smith, who wrote Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Uh, When I saw his name flash in the credits, I was like, oh, shit, we're in for a bad time, aren't we? So if you thought it couldn't get worse than Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, think again. It can. It can, because this film doesn't have Henry Sturgis in it. (laughs) You know, even Eva Green, who is a goddess that I don't even belong in the same realm with, even she couldn't save this. She is by far the best part of this movie, and we're going to talk about her a little more in detail later, because we're trying to do a compliment sandwich because we have so many bad things to say about this film. So we're trying to talk about good things at the beginning and good things at the end, and then we'll bitch in the middle. Yeah. Uh, so we're so we do have great things to say about her. She's the only one in this film who she's the only reason to watch this film. I think honestly, safe to say. But even she cannot single handedly save this movie. No, because there's a shit ton of characters. There are so many characters, <laughs> yes. Um, I think the adaptation does not streamline, like, the anything. multitude of characters. It doesn't yeah. streamline anything. No, it, it doesn't. We'll, we'll, we'll bitch later. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I, I'm trying to bitch too early because that's just who I am. <laughs> I feel like I need a button. I just, like, have to, have to hit it. You started bitching too early. So, overall, this film's a hot mess. Um, but I will say I really love the way that it looks. That's one of the best things about this film. It's set in the 70s. So it's set when the original show um, was set. (laughs) And I feel like the, the sort of production design and the cinematography and, you know, the whole kind of visual, the whole aesthetic of the film Mm -hmm. really blends this sort of like pop culture vision of the 70s with Tim Burton's like gothic shit. Ah, and it makes sense too. It's Colleen Atwood who did the costume design. Yes. And she's yes. and the costumes are great. Amazing. So, mm-hmm. I should have I should have been able to tell, but there's mm-hmm. with such a heavy like 60s 70s flair, I couldn't recognize her work mm-hmm. immediately. And <laughs> she's a pretty frequent collaborator with Tim Burton, yes. Yeah. yeah. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. She's very prolific and she's Oscar winning. And yeah, she's one of our one of our best costume designers for sure. Um, and she does great work in this film. Yeah, everything's great. Like I, I want the the setting and all of the visuals and the house itself, like all of that made me want to like this movie so badly. Like even the soundtrack is so good. So I was like very pulled in. And when, upon like first rewatching this, I was like, well, you know, maybe it's not going to be so bad this time. Maybe I, I was harsh on it because it just wasn't what I wanted when I was younger, you know, and maybe I'll, I'll enjoy it more as an older uh, movie goer. I don't know. Um, as your taste has changed. Yeah. It really, it sucks you in with that only to like throw you on the ground. <laughs> yeah. And I will say too, this is the second time that I've watched a movie for this podcast and thought, the cinematography was great and looked it up and it was a famous cinematographer. Um, it happened with Let the Right One In, of course, which mm-hmm. was filmed by Hoyt Van Hoytema, who I have to say, like his work on Nope this year was just mind blowing. Like, but anyway, so I was watching this film and I was like, it looks so great. Like who did it? And it was uh, Bruno Del Bonnell, who 
um, who is a well-known cinematographer. He's French, but he's since moved to Hollywood. He kind of made his name with Amelie. Um, and mm. then he, he also did um, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, um, which I think is one of the better looking Harry Potter films. He also did, uh, he's worked with the Coen brothers several times. The first thing he did with the Coen brothers was Inside Lewin Davis, which is another one of the best looking films. Um, and he's worked with them several times, most recently on the tragedy of Macbeth. And he's also worked with Tim Burton multiple times after this. So, uh, Dark Shadows was the first film that he did with Tim Burton, but then he also did, um, Miss Peregrine's Home for peculiar children mm-hmm. is that what it is and also bright eyes um he did um but yeah this film looks so good the cinematography is is great like the shots are fun um there are so many uh like humorous shots of barnabas the vampire like kind of intruding in modern life just visually mm-hmm. um there's this one sequence where there's sort of like renovating the mansion, renovating the house. And there are all these places where Barnabas is kind of hiding from the sun. Uh, he's just like, you know, in... He's trying to find his a place to sleep. And right. he keeps trying different places. And like, he ends up like hanging from the tap, like the... What are those called? The drapes of on the bed, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those things. And so there are all of these shots of kind of Barnabas tucked away in all these places where he keeps kind of getting almost found by the construction people. And mm-hmm. they're, they're uh, whimsical, humorous, fantastic shots. And um, and then there's also like the the quality of the image and kind of the color grading and like the softness of the lighting is very kind of evocative of the late 60s, early 70s. Very warm. Um, yeah, and it it looks it looks great. Um yeah, it looks way better than this film deserves. <laughs> but I just had to shout out Bruno Dalbano because his cinematography is one of the best parts of the film. Yeah. Honestly, the best part of the film if we're being <laughs> like forthcoming here because other than visually this it doesn't have a lot going for it. <laughs> yeah, as we've said. <laughs> And I feel like, you know, we haven't really gotten into the plot yet, but I feel like this is the point to talk about the sex scene, because what makes the sex scene, like, fun, in my opinion, it's not sexy, but the way it's shot is so good. <laughs> like, is so good and fun and whimsical and, like... it was. A, it's a fun scene to me, but because there is zero chemistry and zero like sexual energy between either party and like even the way that they're like destroying the room and tumbling about is very like not romantic or like of there's there's no lust at all it's just like basically they're wrestling and i mean honestly watching wrestlers like pro wrestlers has more like homoerotic energy than (laughs) than they did you know like there's just nothing it's giving me nothing and so no it's not erotic i couldn't enjoy it as it was supposed to be enjoyed i just thought it was like comical because they were tumbling around but like i thought it was supposed to be funny though like i thought it was supposed to be comical like i kind of read it as closer to something like the sex scene in the bronze or something like that it was supposed to be comical for sure but i still think that they wanted you to buy into that relationship a little bit more than we did. I agree with you, but I don't think that that was... I agree with you that that was a problem with the film as a whole. But uh-huh. I I felt like, for me, the sex scene worked the way it was supposed to. Yeah, I, I'm just, <laughs> I was just so distracted by the fact that, like, I just could not even fathom 
either party naked together, you know? I, yeah. <laughs> I just... Yeah, that's true. But I, I just loved the way that scene was shot. It um, was a fun... It was a fun yeah. scene. Yeah, and I agree, with, I agree with you that it wasn't erotic, it wasn't sexy, and I think it would have been a better scene with uh, different actors together. I just think but that I, it's a movie set in the 70s, and there's supposed to be this, like, very weird juxtaposition of like this very like serious vampire character yeah gentleman from another time yeah Yeah. and like him trying to fit into like this very kind of almost lewd turn like change of pace to everything like the women are in really short skirts like yeah he thinks that the girl is uh like a lady of the night you know even though she's just sitting on the couch in a dress you know and like right it's just all of these things that you think of when you think about the 70s you know bad porn like sexual liberation you know like all of that and Mm -hmm. it i just think that there was a big opening for like weird crude sexual humor here Mm -hmm. and they really missed it Mm -hmm. like it would have it would have fit you know and and i think that i think that the sex scene is closest and i think that's why i like the sex scene because i think it gets closest to that and maybe i just like it because Maybe I just like it because I'm 100% in love with the shot of the two of them up against that there are these kind of pop art looking kind of blood splatter paintings uh-huh. on on one of the characters' walls. And so when the two of them start having sex, they like they defy gravity and they're like up against this painting and there's this amazing shot of the two of them. He's pinned her against this like pop art blood splatter painting. Mm. And so maybe I just love this scene because I love the use of that backdrop and I'm just in love with that that shot. That okay. could that could be. That's entirely possible. Because like what I'm what I'm getting at is that like the closest I think that the movie got to to getting where I think that it should have been is all of the the scenes with the brother mm, and mm-hmm. his character is completely pointless has like zero to no dialogue like he's not important at all but like mm-hmm. the way they treated his character I think mm-hmm. is something they should have brought more to right and he he has like a mistress or like a girlfriend at one point and what what does he say to her like anything for you pussycat yeah like he's just he's just skeevy and like a very very 70s way like 70s loose yeah yeah yeah, yeah, like for sure you know and like Mm. i'm thinking like even laszlo's energy yeah yeah. I think that was something that really could have been Laszlo from what we do in the shadows, like the obviously. show. Obviously. <laughs> There's no other Laszlo in our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> but I just think that that would have made the humor of this movie feel a lot more cohesive with the idea. And and I also think too that there was there were certain parts of this film that and certain jokes that felt very misogynistic. Yeah. And I think that having more of a sort of freewheeling sexual energy it would have would softened have made it, that. It would have made it feel a little more fun and yeah. a little less like, ooh, I agree with you on that. Because like agree. that combined with the actual physical violence in this film, which is, I I think it was really strange because there was just moments that were very brutal in this. Mm-hmm. And particularly it, in the finale. Yeah. Yeah. In the finale. And then also in the intro of Barnabas, like when he's mm-hmm. becoming, he's like digging, he's been dug out of his like crypt, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and he like slaughters all of the construction site people, you know? And like, mm-hmm. 
it turns funny kind of but like it's handled in a very like almost slasher movie style in the beginning yeah and it is. and it just doesn't fit with the rest of the movie and i know i'm i'm trying to find a way to articulate this because there are certain things that tim burton does really well and i think that he was trying to play his strengths here but in trying to stay kind of true to both the original like narrative of the show and kind of like heart of it being a soap opera it just like meshed very strangely and so i think that like all of the really hyper like violent dark things were very tim burton-esque but they just weren't in they weren't incorporated into the rest of it in a way that made it feel like a cohesive movie it just felt very like out of place Mm-hmm. And it it was distracting to the point of like it ruined other things, you know, like how the the violence ruined any kind of relationship goofy thing that I could see between Angelique and Barnabas, you know, because mm-hmm. it was just instead of having that like sexual lust filled thing to soften the fact that they have like a weird love hate relationship, it was just kind of like Angelique assaulting Barnabas, but he mm-hmm. liked it. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I just yeah. I just didn't I just didn't vibe with any of any of, of this. Yeah, yeah. So I think that can get us into talking about Barnabas. Like he is the most main character in the movie, I think. And his voiceover kind of starts the film and whatever. He's played by And so yeah, what what kind of vampire is Barnabas? And I think we can um maybe give a little bit of plot summary here too because we just like dived we just dove right in so (laughs) i just don't even want to talk about the plot because it's so dumb oh we don't have to (laughs) i think the only thing i wanted to get at was that uh this the setup of barnabas's introduction to the tv show is kind of how they start this film and and what it is is that there's the the Collins family is living in, you know, modern day, which at that point was the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then they have this, there, there are supernatural things going on in their family, but they have this long lost dead relative, Barnabas Collins, who is a vampire. So he joins the family. He's technically a member of the family, but just from, you know, 200 years ago. Yeah. So that's his kind of connection to the rest of the characters in the movie and the TV show. And we're following him kind of trying to reassimilate into society in the seventies. Yeah. So he's a self-described reluctant vampire. Like vampirism in this world is treated as a curse Mm -hmm. that the witch Angelique bestowed upon Barnabas for breaking her heart. Yeah. He broke up with her and she was like, uh, fine, then you're going to be a vampire for eternity. Yeah. And she also lives forever until the end I, it's weird lore very weird lore <laughs> um <laughs> it, none of it's explained all we know is that she cursed him to be a vampire and so he can't go out in the sun and he drinks blood and likes or has to kill people yeah there doesn't seem to be a workaround for killing people yeah for, for barnabas because yeah. he he says that he doesn't actually want to murder anyone and he doesn't want to drink blood but he has to and he said it's in his nature But then, like, he also goes on, like, tons of murder sprees. There are, like, two specific times in the film where he commits mass murder. Yeah. And it's like, how reluctant are you then? And one of them was completely, like, unjustifiable. 
Right, because one is when he first terms, obviously. Yeah, (laughs) one is when he first wakes up, right, and is kind of dug up from his grave by this construction crew. So you could maybe we know he's a blood raisin at that point. You know, he needs a lot of blood, like rehydrate. Right, and so you you could (laughs) keep in the blood raisin uh, bit going. Uh, Twenty twenty three. That's a fan club oldie. So, I mean, you could say, like, oh, well, he's just awoken. He doesn't have control of himself, right? Yeah. Like, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's or just he trying just to survive. he just needs more blood to get right. back to being himself. Right. But then the second time he does it, there's no reason. He, like, kills this group of hippie kids Who for no reason. He sought them out to get advice on how to woo the nanny of the, the family that he's in love with. And she's also the reincarnated version of his long-lost love who Angelique killed. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. I know you're, <laughs> I know the reaction of the people listening to this, and you are correct. Um, Spot on. <laughs> and so he's, like, asking their advice on how to, to kind of court her in a modern sense. Um, and again, one of those scenes that kind of should be endearing, and you should be kind of rooting for Barnabas. You're just not. Yeah. And you're just like, ew, you're a skeevy old vampire dude. Get away from that young nanny girl. Like, (laughs) um, and so they give him advice, obviously. And then he's like, well, I'm sad, but I have to kill you all now. And then he like murders them all. Them all. He murders them them. all. Yeah. Maybe in this world, like you can't just drink a little bit of blood, but like, I don't know. I just don't get it. There was just a weird tension between like, I feel like the film was, I mean, he was the main character of the film. You're obviously supposed to root for him. You're supposed to find him kind of sympathetic, but he, and and like I said, I'm all for like a a complicated protagonist or an anti-hero or whatever, but I don't, the film wasn't like. No, it was treating him like we were supposed to be like rooting for him in a way where he wasn't doing anything evil right yeah like (laughs) you know i love evil vampires (laughs) you know i love evil vampires with all of my heart but like this film was not treating him like an evil vampire they were treating him like kind of like a like a a dark golden retriever yeah and And it's like no but he's not (laughs) yeah 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 and i think i think part of my problem with with barnabas too in this film is trying to kind of pay homage to Jonathan Frid's original performance of Barnabas, which, you know, was iconic at that point. And Frid makes a cameo in this film, and he actually died right before the film came out in theaters. Um, and Thank God he didn't get to see how tragic it was. <laughs> and so I think that... that- is doing the the sort of like rigid awkwardness of the performance, I think comes from trying to emulate like Jonathan Frid, because mm-hmm. that's what he did. And I don't think it works in the context of this film. Like, I don't think it's a bad performance necessarily, like on its own. I just don't think it works in the film. It and works so in there's like, parts of the film. Right, in like, parts. Like we established, the film is kind of a weird hodgepodge of ideas of how to reinvent the concept. Yeah. So again, I think that maybe if Tim Burton stuck to more of what he knows and what he's good at and kept it kind of a complete adaptation a la Tim Burton, <laughs> it it would have worked better because I don't think would have done as much of kind of an homage to the original. But because Tim Burton was trying to really keep a lot of 
what was in the original in this version. I think that there are certain performances that were negatively affected by that vision. Yeah, and I think that where performance works the best is those parts where it kind of is closer to like the tone of the TV show, like mm-hmm. when the more so kind it's of kind of comedic- opposite because the yeah. general movie works better when it's not trying to completely emulate the original. Yes, but performance works best when he is emulating the original right because i think because i think where it works the best is is like this clash between him as this you know this man of the 18th century Mm -hmm. who has these outdated ideas and doesn't know what's going on in the 1970s and the kind of humor of that um and his very dry deadpan delivery um to comedic effect is really is really a highlight. But then in the sections where it's the film is supposed to be sort of more emotionally sincere, Mm -hmm. or you're supposed to kind of like empathize or sympathize with Barnabas or like the love story parts. um, When you're supposed to take him seriously in any. Yeah, it doesn't really, it doesn't really work. Yeah. Um, So like I said, I don't know that it's necessarily like a bad performance. It just doesn't mesh. I think that translates into the performance of um, Victoria, too. Mm -hmm. Because... she's That's the nanny that Barnabas is in love with, yeah. Victoria is played as a... Bella Heathcote was going for a very serious performance. And a really classic kind of Tim Burton heroine performance, I would say, too. (laughs) She's got the look. Visually, yes, but not in the way she acted. Because Mm -hmm. I feel like Tim Burton's female characters always have a little bit more spunk. Yeah. To be fair, though, she wasn't given enough screen time she to have any She was very spunk. wooden. But, like, <laughs> even the screen time she had, she was just very, like... I think all of the actors, honestly, aside from Eva Green, were doing their best to kind of pay homage to the original and were giving their best kind of, like, theatrical soap opera performance. Yeah. And I don't think that worked Because I don't think that that kind of take on this movie worked at all. Specifically, you can see that in poor, poor Chloe Grace Moritz. Oh my god. She was wronged. She was so wronged. I think she's a great actress. I like her in so many different things. Um, There's no way what she was doing in this movie was her choice. No way. Right. I I really think that she was directed to act like that. And it's so weird. It doesn't work. It's bad. It's bizarre. And again, it reminds me of a very like heightened, awkward teen soap opera performance. Right, right back in like the 50s 60s 70s you know yeah because she's acting like someone acting like a bratty teenager yes like and it's weird so it's it's a very it's a very layered performance in a very bad way (laughs) and and it it becomes a little bit more clear as we find out because unlike in the actual show dark shadows where you have all of these supernatural things happening before Barnabas that you're aware of. Like we're introduced to werewolves before Barnabas Mm -hmm. in the show. But in this movie, we find out at the very end that Chloe has been, Chloe's character has been a uh, werewolf the whole time. A baby werewolf this whole time. (laughs) And so that kind of makes her weird, like snarly, growly behavior make a little bit more sense, but in a very like, too little, too late kind of way. Yeah. And in a way where it was kind of just like, she didn't need to be a werewolf at all. It again, it was one of those things that the screenplay was just like throwing so much shit in. Mm. They were like, oh yeah, this this soap opera had like 
400 episodes, right? We're going to get everything in this movie. Mm -hmm. everything not one mm -hmm. thing was written out and that was that's the biggest mistake you can make man <laughs> mm -hmm. especially with something like a soap opera because there's so much plot in a yes. soap opera because they have to keep going day in day out and so you churn through plot like nobody's business and and in but that's why with a film you can't plot it that densely and it makes me so mad because of the very fact that you have such a plethora of things to choose from for an adaptation, that's like a screenwriter's like candy land, you know, yeah, to be yeah. able to like pick and choose the best and like storylines, considerably yeah. worse storylines and put together storylines that you think would have been better. And like, just you can you can have a very heavy editorial hand with that. And mm -hmm. you have to when you're converting it to a completely different thing you know like you're going from a daily soap opera where the yeah. episodes were like 20 minutes long max to suddenly a like entire cinematic movie that's two hours long you know yeah and i mean this is changing with cinematic universes and whatever but like generally films have to be self-contained right whereas like and that's totally different from a, a serial format like tv where you mm -hmm. have to keep perpetuating plot you know to keep going um yeah they're just different formats you probably already heard us and i'm not trying to beat a dead horse but like we are both very much on the team Let's keep movies self-contained again. <laughs> yes, yes. And this movie falls prey to that. I mean, this movie came out in 2012 and it was like, that was, I feel like the late aughts, early tens, every single big budget studio film like ended with a tease for a sequel. Every single one. And this one does too. And I was like, why? I think the best why? part about that though is that 90% of them never got sequels. They never got sequels. I know. And so, so it's just irritating. I think it's so funny imagining someone from years and years down the line watching these movies being like, why do they all end on a cliff like this? Like, why do they all end with these weird allusions to more? And then yeah. like never getting more. And like, I just can imagine someone in like the... 2050s being like <laughs> investigating this and being like why did all these sequels never get made <laughs> it's just fascinating yeah yeah it's so the historian in me kind of loves that we have a period like this <laughs> just because it's gonna be wacky to look back on and i and i feel like that a lot of films now like obviously a lot of hollywood films are interested in you know cinematic world building and whatever but i feel like the tease has has morphed, right? It's yeah. not just that one little thing at the end anymore. It's like they'll do they'll introduce things kind of during the main plot line or or they'll Or better yet, they'll, they'll sprinkle crumbs, but they won't be like it won't end with that really obnoxious little cliffhanger extra, you know, like they all did. I hate I simultaneously hate and love how this has become a thing now. But I do, on one hand, enjoy the fact that we have more self-contained movies again. And then at the, after the credits, we'll get, like, a dumb little teaser for something more. Yeah, because at least you're being shameless about, like, it's, yeah. it's just, like, you're being so upfront. Like, we know this has nothing to do with the film. And we're just trying to hook you for the next yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, it's clearly just kind of, like, a pre-trailer for something. Yeah. And right. just to get you excited for what's to come and right. to keep yourself invested, whatever. Yeah. But like the other half of me is really pissed about it because now everyone sits through their credits for everything and like gets really mad when there's not an end scene. 
Have you noticed people take their phones out to Google? Yes. And I'm like... People, like, when the credits come up, people will take their phones out to Google if there's a post-credit scene. I'm it's just really like, funny. And it's it's extra funny as someone who has always watched the credits. Mm-hmm. I just always have. I've I, It's, in, like, the weird part of me that's always been obsessed with movies is, like, I feel like I owe it to these people to, like, sit totally. through the credits, and it's, you know? And it's kind of like a decompression, too, especially yeah. if it's a film that, like really got to me or something the credits give you time to kind of sit with what you saw and yeah. to digest and like get ready to move on and do something yeah, different to re-enter the world yeah 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 so i i love how it's kind of forced people to sit through credits but i also hate how people are like mad that they had to watch credits and i'm just like <laughs> you only had that movie because of what's on that credit screen i know you like, respect to the artisans <laughs> and the crafts people you read their the names labor. you read them now <laughs> It's true, though. Anyway, sit through credits. That's the end of my TED Talk. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I think I think we touched on all the things we didn't like about this film, which is most of it. The tone and the plot and Barnabas. Yeah. Well, I think it's important. Because as we end on Eva and her character, we I would want to touch a little bit more on the fact that there is that, like, forced relationship between Barnabas and the nanny, Victoria. Yeah. And it's just, like, Victoria gets no dialogue or screen time. We don't, except in the beginning when there's a lot of buildup for her for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, honestly, we get more from her, like, reincarnated ghost than we get from Victoria. I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. We got ghosts in there, too. Yeah. yeah the, ghosts. The, the, yeah. It's everything in the kitchen sink in here, really. And so there's this weird romance between them. And the whole time that they're kind of trying to hard sell you on this relationship, he's off gallivanting with Angelique and the doctor that Helena Bone Carter plays, the psychiatrist. Yeah. Like, he's <laughs> having sex with everyone except Victoria. And then it's right. like, then he finally gets to like kiss her at this moment and you're supposed to be like, oh, it's the moment. And it's just gross. <laughs> yeah, because there's they don't have any chemistry and there's really no indication that Victoria is in love with him except that she says it and yeah. like, they kiss and you're like, wait, what? Yeah. You're into him since when? He's like twice her age plus some, not even yeah. accounting for the fact that he's from the 1700s. <laughs> Like, yeah. I'm talking know, about, like... Just talking about physical... Physical. <laughs> like, how old he looks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, So it's a really... That little love story is a very weak point. And then the film sort of ends on this very romantic image of the two of them where she's been... He turns her into a vampire to save her life. And then they get to be vampire lovers. And it's, like, it's so Tim Burton, but it, like, doesn't fit with the rest of the movie at all. And... It's extra weird because I just hate them together. I don't get it. (laughs) And it's even more annoying to me because not only does it just not fit with the story and like the tone of the movie, it also sticks out visually like a sore thumb. It does. Yeah. It's a weird moment where it's almost black and white and she blinks as she's turning into a vampire and suddenly she looks like a corpse, like classic Tim Burton style girl, you know? Yeah. And it just feels very, very cliche and very like, oh, you just couldn't help yourself, could you, Tim? You just couldn't (laughs) stop it. That's exactly what it feels like. (laughs) That's exactly what it feels like. Like, you just couldn't help yourself, Tim. That's that's it. (laughs) Yep. And it's like, it's just, it's awkward and it cuts at the end and it's supposed to be like romantic or like emotional, but it's just not. 
and it just doesn't work. And it feels like it almost feels like they like had a different ending and then it didn't work out. So they're like, oh, shit, what can we do? What can we I'll just slap some makeup on her and make her yeah. look like Tim Burton classic, you know? Yeah, it, it was it wasn't a good ending. It wasn't mm-hmm. a good ending. And it's extra weird, too, because like, I feel like had more chemistry with Michelle Pfeiffer, who's like playing one of his descendants, <laughs> right? So like, they can't be romantically involved because they're related by blood. But like, they had more chemistry than Barnabas and Victoria the nanny. And like, I was Honestly, just- Victoria and the brother had more chemistry than Victoria and Barnabas. And he right. was a creepy sleazeball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was. <laughs> but yeah, it was just, it didn't- A damn shame and criminal use of Johnny Lee Miller, if I Yeah, just say. a waste of Johnny Lee Miller. Just- why was he in this movie? I bitched about that for like 20 minutes before we recorded, so I won't do it again, but <laughs> I mean, most of the most of the cast doesn't get that much screen time because there are too many characters, but I would say everybody except Johnny Lee Miller at least gets like a little standout moment or gets yeah. to do like a little bit of their shtick or whatever. Like even Helena Bottom Carter, she's not in the film that much. I mean, she gets killed off and put to the bottom of the ocean. And yeah, but she's, you know, gets to play kind of a zany big character and her little side plot is she's trying to steal Barnabas's blood because she wants to be a vampire and preserve her eternal youth. Um, And she gets to kind of, you know, seduce Barnabas and it's fun. Like she Mm -hmm. has her moment. Um, But yeah, Johnny Lee Miller doesn't get his moment ever. No. And he's really good at playing someone unlikable. Mm-hmm. Like, really yeah. good at it. So, like, it's not even that I like Johnny Lee Miller, so I wanted to enjoy his character. Like, I'm fully prepared. I was prepared to hate his character just from, like, what he looked like, you know? I was like, oh, this yeah. guy's gonna be an yeah. asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he was, but in a very lackluster way. Very, very, yeah. Like, his whole point was to be a deadbeat so Barnabas could send him away. And they had this weird side plot because, again, there's, like, 8,000 things that happen in this movie for no reason. And one of them is, like, this weird build-up. Like, they keep leaving crumbs that the brother is going to, like, try to steal the fortune that Barnabas has been hiding in the basement. And then they do nothing with that. Mm-hmm. Nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whatever. I don't know. I don't know. The script sucks. It really does. To to finish off our bitch sandwich with something <laughs> positive. I think it's the, it's it's the opposite. It's a isn't it a compliment sandwich where you it's compliment criticism compliment whatever. But I guess I guess if we're bitching in the middle, then it would be a bitch sandwich. It's mostly bitching, so I feel like yeah. it's a bitch sandwich. So I feel like which, it should be called a bitch sandwich. Yeah, yeah. with like some yeah. end the, caps of happy. <laughs> yeah, because the the filling is hater. Yeah, haterade, Yeah. <laughs> Like, if you're 90% full of (laughs) hatred, you can't be a compliment sandwich, you know? No, no, it's true. Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) Back to our woman, the the one who steals the show, Eva Green. Mm. She is phenomenal as Angelique. As we said earlier, she's she's the witch that curses Barnabas with vampirism. Yes. And she's still in love with him, even in the in the present day of the film, in the 70s. So he comes back and she's like determined to have him now. Um, and he does not want to be with her. So And for the most part, it's very over like exaggerated, and she clearly is just like wants to possess him, whatever. Yeah. It works really well until the end. Mm-hmm. When they try to be, like, really sincere. Yeah, and try to make it like she had some sort of sincere love for him. 
Or yeah. or the fact that like Barnabas tries to kind of like psychoanalyze her and be like, you don't really love me. And like, we didn't need that layer of sincerity. Like that just, mm-hmm. again, added another clunky level to this mm-hmm. that was it's a very convoluted film already. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, basically, Eva Green is playing the campiest, vampiest, sexiest version of the overly attached girlfriend meme. Like, that is what she's doing. She is. She has the most vampire energy of anyone in this She movie. does, and she's not a vampire. And she's not a vampire. I mean, she should play an actual vampire where she can, like, be as over the top. And, like, I want, I want Eva Green's Dracula. Oh my god, yes. Yes. Gender-bent Dracula, played by Eva Green, is what I want most in the world right now. That's an amazing idea. I didn't realize how badly we needed that until I said it out loud, and now I'm like, oh god, that's good. Hollywood, call me! (laughs) That's really good. But yeah, Eva Green is the one who, she's playing it probably the biggest of anyone. I mean, her performance is huge. And she is, as I said, totally, she's not a vampire, but she's vamping it up. Yeah. Um, And she, I mean, I love Eva Green's voice. I love her raspy voice. And I feel like she really leverages it in this film very well. Um, Because she has, her voice kind of has a range, right? And there Mm -hmm. are certain moments in this film where she, Almost sounds like she's croaking or something. Yeah. Um, It's so good. It's so good. I Well, because she's playing a really interesting balancing act of in the beginning, she does seem very human. And then as the film progresses and she gets more and more kind of like evil and crazy and unhinged, like she kind of loses that humanity. Mm -hmm. And Eva Green does like a fantastic job of of showing that not only visually but through her voice too. You mm-hmm. know, like she she yeah. loses kind of the softer, more feminine tone that she has in the beginning, and as as you go on, she's like, I mean, they do this fantastic thing where she starts to like crack like a porcelain doll, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's it's really unnerving and 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 creepy in such a yeah, good it makes way. the finale really disturbing actually, yeah. But her physicality in that finale when she kind of turns into this, the choreography that she, yeah. Did, impressive her her physicality this like broken doll physicality that she does in the finale is so good it's so good they can't teach that she just has that you know yeah that ability to just like to use her whole body you know Mm -hmm. yeah but if we used Eva Green as kind of the the baseline for the rest of this movie and all of the other actors brought even a fraction of what she brought, this movie could have been good. Yeah, because I think she's the only one who is actually kind of tapping into that camp vein correctly, right? Because there's not a way to do a version of Dark Shadows that's good without kind of tapping into the camp. Right, because that's it's soap operas or, or yeah, campy, yeah. right? Like <laughs> to have and I know that Tim Burton is capable of it because mm-hmm. we get kind of what I think this film needed with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory mm-hmm. when it's very absurd humor that kind but of But played totally straight and very serious. Yeah. It's very serious. Combined yeah. with the very like impressive and like serious visuals of the film makes for that kind of line of of campy and ridiculous, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. like interesting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just don't know how like they missed the mark so badly. And I mean I know it had to start with 
the steaming pile of crap that was the screenplay for this movie. But I know that it wasn't just the screenplay that was bad. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other things too. Mm -hmm. And like on paper, it makes sense to have Tim Burton do a version of Dark Shadows. So like, it's just disappointing that it ended up being so bad. Yeah. (laughs) Like a star studded cast aside from personal feelings on the matter of certain members. Right. And like really good cinematographer directing all of that like it should have been good and so it pisses me off that it wasn't (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's definitely just a misfire and Mm -hmm. i there are enough things about it that i i liked that i kind of i just wanted it to be better than it was yeah (laughs) for sure yeah so do we have any last thoughts on Tim Burton's Dark Shadows. If you haven't seen it and you listen to us bitch about it, you probably aren't inclined to go watch it, but I would say it's not worth it <laughs> overall. Yeah. If that no. wasn't clear by now. And also, like, I do feel like this is a vampire podcast. And yeah, I don't like the vampire in this movie. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's that's kind of the main Kind of like hypocritical of me to say that as someone who... Uh, advocated on covering I Am Legend (laughs) (laughs) and vaguely the Batman but (laughs) it's just he was a vampire but I didn't like him and I didn't like this so I don't like it (laughs) right yeah I mean it is there is a vampire in it but it's just not a very good vampire movie yeah and honestly I would rather just not watch a vampire movie than watch a movie about a vampire that's just not good (laughs) you know like there are movies that are like bad vampire movies but the Mm -hmm. vampire in it is still good you know like the invitation exactly (laughs) exactly i rewatched that recently it's on netflix if you have it is on netflix now go watch it on netflix and then go listen to our episode if you missed out because that was a fun time and we bitch a whole lot less (laughs) yeah that's a fun time and that's a good vampire movie yes like capital v capital m yeah uh so yeah that's we'll leave you with that note we'll leave you we'll leave you with a a bit of the invitation evangelizing (laughs) (laughs) thank you for joining us for this meeting of the fan club if you enjoy what we do please remember to rate us on apple podcasts or spotify if you can it really helps other listeners find our show you can find show notes and other related information in the episode description and if you have anything that you want to share with us you can find us on instagram and or twitter at fang club pod we are going to try to be a little more active on the instagram we've been slacking lately but that's one of one of my new year's resolutions (laughs) so hold us accountable We also have an email, which is fanclubpod at gmail.com. And if you have any ideas for films that you want us to cover or anything that's coming out in 2023 or beyond that you've seen and you don't know if we've heard of, please let us know. We love suggestions. And surprisingly, we have worked through quite a bit of our Excel files. So we have. Um, don't worry, we will be covering Renfield when it comes out. I've I had so many people send me the trailer and I was like, yep, we will be talking about it. Brie has feelings about Nick Cage. You might not like it. <laughs> I don't think anyone's gonna I'll I'll probably have to rein it in just so we don't get canceled, but <laughs> I just out of all of the movies that you could possibly put out based off of Dracula, no one wanted that. Okay, I'm done. I'm sorry. <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you so much to our Kofi supporters. And if you'd like to join them, even after hearing my meltdown just now, you can find uh, our Kofi at www.kofi.com slash fangclub. That's www.ko-fi.com slash fangclub. As always, the best way to support us is to listen and to tell your friends about us. Um, we do this for you. We love all of our regular listeners. Thank you again to all of our Kofi supporters. Thanks to both of our moms. I, yeah, I know. Number one fans. <laughs> you guys make it worth it. So we're so excited for 2023 with the Fan Club. Yay! We'll see you next time. <laughs>